Hello listeners and readers, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are moving into chapter three of A Lost Lady by Willa Cather. Before we got started today, I wanted to talk a little bit about these older books, these older works of literature. You oftentimes encounter language, themes that deal with and are racist, sexist, bigoted. Uh, I wanted to let you know that in the books that I read, I do not ever censor the books and I read them unabridged as written uh, the versions that you can find in the public domain for yourself Uh, I feel it's just important to keep in mind the context in which these books are written the times at which they're written and that we can read these books openly and critically think about what's being presented to us without censoring them at all. Uh, So that being said, thank you so much for uh, reading and following along with me. Let's uh, discover this together then, shall we? All right. Chapter 3 For the next few years, Neil saw very little of Miss Forrester. She was an excitement that came and went with summer. She and her husband always spent winter in Denver and Colorado Springs, left Sweetwater soon after Thanksgiving, and did not return until the 1st of May. He knew that Miss Forrester liked him, but she hadn't much time for growing boys. When she had friends staying with her and gave a picnic supper for them or a dance in the grove on a moonlit night, Neil was always invited. Coming and going along the road to the marsh with the Blum boys, he sometimes met the captain driving visitors over in the Democratic Democrat wagon. And he heard about these people from Black Tom, Judge Pomeroy's faithful Negro servant, who went over to wait on the table for Miss Forrester when she had a dinner party. Then came the accident, which cut short the captain's career as a road builder. After that fall with his horse, he lay ill at the Antlers in Colorado Springs all winter. In the summer, when Miss Forrester brought him home to Sweetwater, he still walked with a cane. He had grown much heavier, seemed encumbered by his own bulk, and never suggested taking a contract for the railroad again. 
he was able to work in his garden, trimmed his snowball bushes and lilac hedges, devoted a great deal of time to growing roses. He and his wife still went away for the winter, but each year the period of their absence grew shorter. All this while, the town of Sweetwater was changing. Its future no longer looked bright. Successive crop failures had broken the spirit of the farmers. George Adams and his family had gone back to Massachusetts, disillusioned about the West. One by one, the other gentlemen ranchers followed their example. The foresters now had fewer visitors. The Burlington was drawing in its horns, as people said, and the railroad, railroad officials were not stopping off at Sweetwater so often, were more inclined to hurry past a town where they had sunk money that would never come back. Neil Herbert's father was one of the first failures to be crowded to the wall. He closed his little house, sent his cousin Sadie back to Kentucky, and went to Denver to accept an office position. He left Neil behind to read law in the office with his uncle. Not that Neil had any taste for the law, but he liked being with Judge Pomeroy, and he might as well stay there as anywhere for the present. The few thousand dollars his mother had left him would not be his until he was 21. Neil fitted up a room for himself behind the suite, which the judge retained for his law offices, on the second floor of the most pretentious brick block in town. There he lived with monastic cleanliness and severity, glad to be rid of his cousin and her inconsequential housewifery, and resolved to remain a bachelor, like his uncle. He took care of the offices, which meant that he did the janitor work, and arranged them exactly to suit his taste, making the rooms so attractive that all the judge's friends, and especially Captain Forrester, dropped in there to talk oftener than ever. The judge was proud of his nephew. Neil was now 19, a tall, straight, deliberate boy. His features were clear-cut, his gray eyes so dark that he looked black under his long lashes were rather moody and challenging. The world did not seem overbright to young people just then. His reserve, which did not come from embarrassment or vanity, but from a critical habit of mind, made him seem older than he was and a little cold. One winter afternoon, only a few days before Christmas, Neil sat writing in the back office at the long table where he usually worked or trifled, surrounded by the judge's fine law library and solemn steel engravings of statesmen and jurists. His uncle was at his desk in the front office, engaged in a friendly consultation with one of his country clients. Neil, greatly bored with the notes he was copying, was trying to invent an excuse for getting out on the street when he became aware of light footsteps coming rapidly down the outside corridor. The door of the front office opened. He heard his uncle rise quickly to his feet and, at the same moment, heard a woman's laugh, a soft, musical laugh, which rose and descended like a suave scale. He turned in his screw chair so that he could look over his shoulder through the double doors into the front room. 
Miss Forrester stood there, shaking her muff at the judge and the bewildered Swede farmer. Her quick eye lighted upon a bottle of bourbon and two glasses on the desk among the papers. Is that the way you prepare your cases, judge? What an example for Neil! She peeped through the door and nodded to the boy as he rose. He remained in the back room, however, watching her while she declined the chair the judge pushed toward her and made a sign of refusal when he politely pointed to the bourbon. She stood beside his desk in her long sealskin coat and cap, a crimson scarf showing above the collar, a little brown veil with spots tied over her eyes. The veil did not in the least obscure those beautiful eyes, dark and full of light, set under a low white forehead and arching eyebrows. The frosty air had brought no color to her cheeks. Her skin had always the fragrant crystalline whiteness of white lilacs. Miss Forrester looked at once, and one knew that she was bewitching. It was instantaneous, and it pierced the thickest hide. The Swede farmer was now grinning from ear to ear, and he too had shuffled to his feet. There could be no negative encounter, however slight, with Miss Forrester. If she merely bowed to you, merely looked at you, it constituted a personal relation. Something about her took hold of one in a flash. One became acutely conscious of her, of her fragility and grace, of her mouth, which could say so much without words, of her eyes, lively, laughing, intimate, nearly always a little mocking. Will you and Neil dine with us tomorrow evening, Judge? And will you lend me Tom? We've just had a wire. The Ogdens are stopping over with us. They've been east to bring the girl home from school. She's had mumps or something. They want to get home for Christmas, but they will stop off for two days. Probably Frank Ellinger will come on from Denver. No prospect can afford me such pleasure of as that of dining with Miss Forrester, said the judge ponderously. Thank you. She bowed playfully and turned towards the double doors. Neil, could you leave your work long enough to drive me home? Mr. Forrester has been detained at the bank. Neil put on his wolfskin coat. Mrs. Forrester took him by his shaggy sleeve and went with him quickly down the long corridor and the narrow stairs to the street. At the hitch bar stood her cutter, looking like a painted toy among the country sleds and wagons. Excuse me. Neil tucked the buffalo robes about Miss Forrester, untied the ponies, and sprang in beside her. Without direction, the team started down the frozen main street, where few people were abroad, crossed the creek on the ice, and trotted up the poplar-boarded lane toward the house on the hill. The late afternoon sun burned on the snow-crusted pastures. The poplars looked very tall and straight, pinched up and severe in their winter poverty. Mrs. Forrester chatted to Neil with her face turned towards him, holding her muff up to break the wind. I'm counting on you to help me entertain Constance Ogden. Can you take her off my hands day after tomorrow? Come over in the afternoon? Your duties as a lawyer aren't very arduous yet, 
She smiled teasingly. What can I do with a miss of 19, one who goes to college? I've no learned conversation for her. Surely I haven't, Neil exclaimed. Oh, but you're a boy. Perhaps you can interest her in lighter things. She's considered pretty. Do you think she is? I haven't seen her lately. She was striking. China blue eyes and heaps of yellow hair. Not exactly yellow. What they call an ashen blonde, I believe. Neil had noticed that in describing the charms of other women, Mrs. Forrester always made fun of them a little. They drew up in front of the house. Ben Keyser came round from the kitchen to take the team. You are to go back for Mr. Forrester at six, Ben. Neil, come in for a moment and get warm. She drew him in through the little storm entry, which protected the front door in winter, into the hall. Hang up your coat and come along. He followed her through the parlor into the sitting room, where a little coal grate was burning under the black mantelpiece, and sat down in the big leather chair in which Captain Forrester dozed after his midday meal. It was a rather dark room, with walnut bookcases that had carved tops and glass doors. The floor was covered by a red carpet, and the walls were hung with large, old-fashioned engravings. The house of the poet on the last day of Pompeii, Shakespeare reading before Queen Elizabeth. Mrs. Forrester left him and presently returned, carrying a tray with a decanter and sherry glasses. She put it down on her husband's smoking table, poured out a glass for Neil and one for herself, and perched it on the arm of one of the stuffed chairs, where she sat, sipping her sherry and stretching her tiny silver-buckled slippers out toward the glowing coals. It's so nice to have you staying on until after Christmas, Neil observed. You've only been here one other Christmas since I can remember. I'm afraid we're staying on all winter this year. Mr. Forrester thinks we can't afford to go away. For some reason, we are extraordinarily poor just now. Like everybody else, the boy commented grimly. Yes, like everybody else. However, it does no good to be glum about it, does it? She refilled the two glasses. I always take a little sherry at this time in the afternoon. At Colorado Springs, some of my friends take tea like the English, but I should feel like an old woman drinking tea. Besides, sherry is good for my throat. Neil remembered some legend about a weak chest and occasional terrifying hemorrhages, but that seemed doubtful as one looked at her, fragile indeed, but with such light effervescing vitality. Perhaps I do seem old to you, Neil, quite old enough for tea in a cap. He smiled gravely. You seem always the same to me, Miss Forrester. Yes, and how is that? Lovely, just lovely. As she bent forward to put down her glass, she patted his cheek. Oh, you'll do very well for Constance. Then seriously, I'm glad if I do though. I want you to like me well enough to come and see me 
or see us often this winter. You shall come with your uncle to make a fourth at whist. Mr. Forrester must have his whist in the evening. Do you think he is looking any worse, Neil? It frightens me to see him getting a little uncertain. But there, we must believe in good luck. She took up the half-empty glass and held it against the light. Neil liked to see the firelight sparkle on her earrings, long pendants of garnets and seed pearls in the shape of fleur-de-lis. She was the only woman he knew who wore earrings. They hung naturally against her thin triangular cheeks. Captain Forrester, although he had given her handsomer ones, liked to see her wear these because they had been his mother's. It gratified him to have his wife wear jewels. It meant something to him. She never left off her beautiful rings unless she was in the kitchen. A winter in the country may do him good, said Mrs. Forrester, after a silence during which she looked intently into the fire, as if she were trying to read the outcome of their difficulties there. He loves this place so much, but you and Judge Pomeroy must keep an eye on him when he is in town, Neil. If he looks tired or uncertain, make some excuse and bring him home. He can't carry a drink or two as he used. She glanced over her shoulder to see that the door into the dining room was shut. Once, last winter, he had been drinking with some old friends at the Antlers, nothing unusual, just as he always did, as a man must be able to do, but it was too much for him. When he came out to join me in the carriage, coming down that long walk, you know, he fell. There was no ice, he didn't slip. It was simply because he was unsteady. He had trouble getting up. I still shiver to think of it. To me, it was as if one of the mountains had fallen down. A little later, Neil went plunging down the hill, looking exultantly into the streak of red sunset. Oh, the winter would not be so bad this year. How strange that she should be here at all. A woman like her among common people. Not even in Denver had he ever seen another woman so elegant. He had sat in the dining room of the Brown Palace Hotel and watched them as they came down to dinner, fashionable women from the East on their way to California. But he had never found one so attractive and distinguished as Mrs. Forrester. Compared with her, other women were heavy and dull. Even the pretty ones seemed lifeless. They had not that something in their glance that made one's blood tingle and never elsewhere had he heard anything like her inviting musical laugh that was like the distant measures of dance music heard through opening and shutting doors. He could remember the first time he ever saw Mrs. Forrester when he was a little boy. He had been loitering in front of the Episcopal Church one Sunday morning when a low carriage drove up to the door. Ben Keyser was on the front seat and on the back seat was a lady, alone, in a black silk dress, all puffs and ruffles, and a black hat, carrying a parasol with a carved ivory handle. As the carriage stopped, she lifted her dress to a light. 
Out of a swirl of foamy white petticoats, she thrust a black, shiny slipper. She stepped lightly to the ground and with a nod to the driver, went into the church. The little boy followed her through the open door, saw her enter a pew and kneel. He was proud now that at the first moment he had recognized her as belonging to a different world from any he had ever known. Neil paused for a moment at the end of the lane to look up at the last skeleton poplar in the long row. Just above its pointed tip hung the hollow silver winter moon. Thank you.